All right, guys, good morning. If we can, let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, we'll be looking at verses 21 to 31. Uh, if we have not met before, my name is Kenson. I have the honor of serving as a pastor here at Park, specifically our Bridgeport location. So good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, also, as well, too, if I can just say some props to the South Loop location here and with the whole adoption fund. Uh, now, just so you guys know that this is not something that's happening just here at South Loop, but it's happening across all our locations. And in big part, it's because of what the Spirit's been doing here in this location that's been driving this passion and conviction, you know, to do more, to bring renewal to our city. So, guys, way to go with that. Thank you for leading our church so well through your example. So, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. Let me read our verses, and then we'll jump right in, okay? Starting at verse 21, chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is the is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You know, recently an album came out, came out called Jesus is King by Kanye West. You guys might be familiar with it. It's currently number one on the billboards. And I had a chance to recently listen to a couple of the songs. And the album is really solid. It's filled with gospel and redemptive truths. And as surprising as it is to see a gospel album number one, what is even more surprising is the transformation of Kanye West. That for most of his life, he has lived his life for himself, and he's been very vocal about it. He once said this, that I don't have time to read history because I'm making history. Okay, this, this is who Kanye was. But just this past year, he began to profess faith in Jesus, and he has stepped out in some very bold and vocal ways to follow Jesus. Now, not everyone is buying this. You know, recently, Trevor Noah, the host of The Daily Show, called Kanye out as a hypocrite. In essence, he said, how can Kanye begin to talk against porn or the rapper lifestyle when this guy has made millions rapping about violence, materialism, and objectifying women. And this skepticism isn't just from outside the church, but inside the church. That when you talk with other Christ followers, when you see what they post online, it's almost as though we don't want to see Kanye's faith as being genuine. Now, I understand the caution 
Jesus says that you will know that you're my disciples. You'll know they're my disciples by their fruit. And fruit takes time to grow and to show itself. So we should be praying for Kanye. Not judging. We should be praying for Kanye and his family that they would endure in the faith. And as Christ followers, we should all believe that God and God can and God will do this because he is a God of amazing grace. Because if Kanye isn't redeemable by the blood of Jesus, guess what? Neither am I, neither are you. You know, I share this with you today because we come to one of the biggest turning points, biggest conversion moments in the book of Romans. Notice those first two words, but now, but now. Now, if you've been with us for the last two months, it has been super, super depressing, okay? Because since chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has just been mounting up all this evidence against humanity that we're all guilty before God. We reject him as creator, that we've exchanged the glory of God for other things, for idol worship, that God has given us his written law. In this context, the Torah, the Old Testament. He's also given the law on our hearts, and we still choose to disobey. We still choose to do evil. Frankly, humanity does not live for the glory of God. That at the heart of all sin is a rejection of God. And this is why Paul can say without hesitation, all humanity is guilty. Religious and irreligious, moral and immoral, Jews and Gentiles, non-Jewish people are all condemned because we all share this same rejection of God in our hearts. And can I just say that if the book of Romans stopped at chapter 3, verse 20, we would be done. It would be over. We, we would be doomed. But here's the good news. We have verse 21. But now. That we now begin to move from the wrath of God to the grace of God. We move from darkness to light. Or if I can borrow language from the Chronicles of Narnia, the long dark winter is over and Aslan is on the move. Jesus is on the move. Many commentators and theologians believe that these verses are the most important verses in the book of Romans, if not the entire Bible, because all the gospel is right here. And more specifically, it's packed into this phrase, the righteousness of God. Now, this word righteousness is used 30 times in the New Testament, and 15 of them are used here in Romans. Now, so we have to ask the question, then what does it mean to have the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God can be described in two ways, the character of God and also the actions of God. So first, the righteousness of God tells us about his character. It tells us that God is perfect, that he is holy, that in him there is no wrong, no sin, no deceit, that God is the perfect measure of justice and goodness. That's God's righteousness, his character. But it also points to what he does that he takes the initiative to give sinners a righteous status before him. That in other words, everything he is, his perfection, his holiness, his rightness, he puts on us, he declares over us. This is what it means to be justified before God. It means that we are being transformed. It means that we all have a but now moment. Now, why does this matter? It's because we all, all of humanity, we hunger for this righteousness. We hunger for acceptance, for validation, for worth. We're hungry for a different story than what our brokenness and failures and hurts tell us. We all hunger for a but 
now, that since the Garden of Eden, we were created to walk in the presence of God, fully loved, fully approved, fully valued. But when we ate of the fruit, we were cast out of God's presence. And from that day forward, all of us, all of humanity, we've been seeking to get back into that right place with God, knowing it or not knowing it, that we're looking for approval, we're looking for validation, we're looking for that but now moment. I once heard someone say this, we need food to survive, but meaning to live. Now, we can look for this meaning in various ways outside of God. It could be through formal religion, through our works, through our kids, through our looks, or through our health. It could be through our money. John D. Rockefeller, the richest man of his generation, said this, one more million dollars and then I'll feel I'm okay. Everyone is struggling for righteousness. So let me ask you as we get started, where is your righteousness coming from? Where is your sense of validation, your sense of worth and approval coming from? Where is your hope for your but now? Notice again in verse 21, what stands up against all the guilt all the sin, all the law-breaking, all the idolatry that Paul has laid out in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Does it say, but now work harder, but now achieve more, but now be more religious, but now have more money, but now, you know, have kids or have them more obedient. Thank God that's not the case, right? Does it say any of that? It doesn't. It says, but now the righteousness of God that it's only in his righteousness are we justified. It's only in his righteousness do we have hope for a but now. So with that, I want to give you guys three insights to help us understand God's righteousness. And here are the three points, and it's on the screen behind me. First, the source of our righteousness, God's grace. Second, the grounds for our righteousness, the cross. And finally, the means for our righteousness, by faith, faith. So first, the source of our righteousness, God's grace. Verse 21 and 23 again. 21, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now Paul says in verse 21, this righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, law-keeping could never make you right before God. And this, again, continues the debate that Paul's been having with these religious objectors, that these Jews who are believing for the last two chapters, that they thought that the law is what it meant to receive salvation, that the more I obeyed the law, the more, I was, the more moral I was, the more religious I was, then I can earn my salvation. And Paul has said over and over again, and he says it again, here, that is impossible. Not because the law is bad, but because we are bad and can never obey it perfectly through our actions and through our hearts. The source of righteousness can never be found in us. The law can't do it. However, it does not mean the law was useless. He says in verse 22, the law and prophets bear witness to it. What's it? The righteousness of God. So the law can't save you. It can't make you righteous, but it can point you to someone who could. That the law is meant to be a pointer. It's meant to be a sign. 
For example, let's just say that right now you passed away and you were to head up into heaven. Now, you guys go into heaven, and as you're walking through heaven, are you going to see signs posted everywhere saying, hey, just so you guys know that you're in heaven, don't lie. Don't, don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Are you going to see signs like that? No way. There will be no signs like this. Why? Because the signs only serve as a pointer. That the signs, the law, was not the ultimate end. It pointed you to the ultimate reality. And who's that? It's the one who will be sitting in the center of the kingdom and city of God, which is Jesus Christ himself. He is the source of our righteousness. In addition, Paul says in verse 24 that we are justified by his grace. Grace can be defined as unmerited favor, that God does something for us that we did not deserve, namely to make us righteous. Also, the word justified is in the passive voice, which means that justification being declared right before God is not something that we do, but something that is done to us. So are you guys starting to see this here? Only God can justify us, and he does it by graciously providing his son, Jesus Christ. What this means is that there's no amount of boxes for us to check off, no amount of prayers that we can pray. It means that we must stop building our spiritual resume. What I mean is that we need to stop trying to prove that we're something to God. For example, if you want that job, what do you do? You begin to build up your resume. You begin to put on all your accomplishments and all your experiences. And when you get to that interview, you slide your resume across to the employer and what are you saying to them? You're saying, I'm worthy of this position. Accept me. Call my references. Call my mommy and daddy. They'll tell you all the great things about me. Or if you want to get into that school or into that academic program, you bring out all your grades, all your degrees, all your SAT scores, all your transcripts. Once again, why? I'm good enough. Accept me. Approve me. This is the way life works right now. But what ends up happening is that we take this very thing and we try to do it with God. But we don't give him our vocational record. We don't give him our academic record. We give him our moral record. God, look at how good I was. Accept me. Approve me. No. To receive God's righteousness comes by grace. It means tearing up your spiritual resume because we can't justify ourselves. Verse 23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Paul says here that we all fall short, it's a picture of an archer. That all of humanity, all of us have a bow and arrow, and the target that we're called to hit is the glory of God. But the problem with this target is that it's on the opposite side of the world. Now, some of us will try to shoot the arrow, and we will get further than others because some of us will be more moral than others. Some of us will sin less than others. But guess what? We're all still going to miss the mark because we all fall short. All our works are worthless to save us. Isaiah 64 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Before God, a good moral record or even a great moral record is not good enough. Nothing but a perfect moral record can connect you to God. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't try to get around this. You know, for some of us, if I can just say this about my 10-year-old kid, when he finds that something is too hard, a target is too hard to hit, it's too far away, do you know what he likes to do? 
He likes to bring it closer so it's easier to hit. That instead of aiming for God's standards, we try to aim for our own standards. Let me just to keep using the archery analogy here. It's like this story. It's a story about a man who goes to a barn. And when he goes to the barn, he sees a bunch of targets. And smack dab in the middle of all of them is an arrow. And this man is super impressed. And he tells the farmer, man, you have someone in your house who's a really good archer because they are hitting the center of the target every single time. And the farmer laughs and says, no, 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 no. You have to understand, my little boy, he has a bow and arrow, and he looks at the barn and he just shoots all these random arrows, and wherever the arrow hits, he draws the target right around it. We do this all the time. We make our own targets of righteousness, and we expect God to be good with it. That as long as I'm not as bad as those other people, I'm hitting the target. Or, or, or as long as I'm kind to others, I'm hitting the target. Or if I go to church regularly, I'm hitting the target. Or if I'm a good enough parent or my kids are obedient enough, I, I'm hitting the target. No. There is only one target to hit, and it is the glory of God. And that's the only one that matters. And all of us, without distinction, have fallen short. We cannot achieve this righteousness on our own. Outside of the grace of God, we will never measure up. And this leads to the second point. The grounds of our righteousness, the cross. How then do we have this righteousness? Look at verse 23 to 26 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier to the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, to give you a little context here, Paul knows that as he writes this, a tension is beginning to build. That again he has in mind the religious objectors and he knows that right now all they're hearing is this. The righteousness of God apart from the law, the righteousness of God, an act of grace, the righteousness of God received by faith, which we'll talk about later. The concern here that they're going to make against Paul is, Paul, it sounds like you're making the law really cheap. It sounds like you're making it obsolete. And Paul states this tension in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? That because of what it sounds like here is that God right now is kind of just giving his righteousness to whoever he wants indiscriminately like candy on Halloween. But here's the issue. Well, if God's doing that, does God have standards anymore to who can receive his righteousness? Does his glory and justice mean anything? You know, are there any consequences for sin? Here's the tension. How could God give us sinners the gift of righteousness and yet not compromise his standard of holiness and righteousness. The key word that unlocks this question is the word propitiation. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The word propitiation means that God's wrath has been satisfied by Jesus Christ. Now, I know that we can hear this and it can sound jarring. God's wrath, really? It makes it sound like God has a short temper or a short fuse. 
We have to remember that God's anger is not like our anger. That his anger is just, it's completely perfect, and always in line with his standard of justice and holiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. Let me show it to you. He said, God's wrath is his settled opposition to all that is evil, arising out of his very nature. His nature is such that he abhors evil, he hates evil. His holiness of necessity leads to that. God has wrath because he hates sin and punishes those who rebel against him. Now, you might sit here and say, well, it sounds like God's being really petty right now. Why can't God just let it go? Is God really that insecure? Let me tell you why God can never just wink at sin. It's because to do that would be to diminish his glory and justice. You know, for example... Let's just say that right now some terrorists make their way to Liberty Island, to the Statue of Liberty, and they blow up the Statue of Liberty. They kill a bunch of tourists, a bunch of American citizens. They kill a bunch of diplomats, you know, and they're all caught. They're tried, and they're all declared guilty. But then the terrorists say, you know what, Judge, Judge, you know, I'm really sorry. We shouldn't have done that, you know. I promise I won't do it again, you know. Thank you very much. And what if the judge said, Ah, oh, it's okay. All right, you're, you're free to go. Don't, don't worry about it at all, right? How many of you guys would say, that's fine? None of us would. We would all be like, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up. Uh, how is that fair to those who are murdered? Well, what about our laws that they broke? What about the sim- symbol of freedom that they destroyed? To do that for the judge just to give a pass would make it all so cheap. In the same way, for God to say that sin is no big deal, for God not to be angry at sin is to say, Evil? Eh, who cares? Injustice? Not that big of a deal. My perfection and holiness? Don't worry about it. Jesus going to the cross? Yeah, it was nice, but not that big of a deal. To minimize sin is to minimize the gospel. This is why God just can't let it go. Justice has to be done. Someone must bear the punishment for the crime. And there's only ever two choices. Either the person who committed the wrong suffers or the one who has been wronged bears the suffering through forgiveness. What I mean by that is that when you forgive someone, the only way you can do that is by choosing to take the hit yourself. That the debt that was owed to you, the honor that they took from you, the hurt that they inflicted on you, to demand justice is to say, I want them hurt like how I was hurt. To forgive is to say, I will bear the pain myself. In the same way, the gospel tells us that instead of us taking the hit, God takes the hit. That he pays the debt of justice on himself. And he does this by sending Jesus to die on the cross. This is what our sins deserve because this is what justice demanded. It's interesting that the word propitiation, when translated from the Greek to Hebrew, is where we get the word for mercy seat. The mercy seat was the lid covering the Ark of the Covenant that held within it the Ten Commandments, and it's this mercy seat that was placed in the Holy of Holies where only one time a year the high priest could enter in on Yom Kippur, and the priest would pour blood over the mercy seat as a sacrificial offering for the sins of all the people. This is a picture of Jesus Christ, that Jesus would satisfy the wrath of God through his blood 
through his death. That Jesus takes the hit for us, and it's on the cross. It's where God would show himself, as it says in verse 26, both just and justifier. Because it's on the cross, sin was not passed over. Sin was not overlooked. God did not wink at it. Jesus takes every sin upon himself. That God proves his holiness on the cross by condemning his son and pouring out all the anger and the punishment that was deserved for our sins. God proves himself just on that cross because sin was dealt with. Sin was paid for in full. This is why it says in verse 31, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That Jesus didn't come to make the law small or obsolete. He came to give it its highest honor because he obeyed every demand perfectly, not just in actions, but also in his heart. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, these words. Let me show it to you. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. God is just. Sin has been paid for. And it's on the cross. God proves himself justifier because it's through the cross. God can now make a way to bring about salvation. He can now declare sinners righteous in his sight because Jesus became our substitution. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you guys see? It's on the cross, God's justice and God's love is reconciled. That God could justify sinners like us and have communion with us without compromising his righteousness because it's on the cross the wrath of God was satisfied that was due to you and me. Do you guys see just how foolish and how naive and how insulting it is to God to ever think that you and I could ever be righteous enough through our works, that through our works that we can satisfy the wrath of God? As Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century American theologian, said these words, you contribute nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. It's only through Christ that we're clothed with the righteousness of God because Jesus, the truly righteous one, died for the unrighteous. Do you see how loved you are? Aren't you glad that God doesn't just wink at our sins? Aren't you glad that God doesn't just pass over our sins? That it actually costs him something to save you. It costs him something to love you. Propitiation means that you are precious to God. Propitiation means that God's law and glory is honored. Propitiation means that God can now extend freely all the status and honor and rights and privileges that Jesus deserved because it's now yours because he took on all of our sin. It's in Jesus we all have a but now. You who are unrighteous, But now in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. You who were slaves, but now are free in Christ. You who are objects of God's wrath, but now you are objects of God's love. You who were once lost, but now you are found. You who were once condemned, but now you are rescued. You who were once rejected, but now you are loved. It's in Christ we can have the righteousness of God. Amen? Amen. 
And here's the third point, the means of our righteousness by faith. So if Christ has achieved this righteousness for us, if it's given us to, to us as grace, how then do we receive it? We receive it by faith. Look at the number of times Paul brings up this idea of faith. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, to be received by faith. Verse 26, the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, but by the law of faith. Verse 28, for we hold that the one is justified by faith. Verse 30, justified the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? It almost sounds like Paul's trying to say something right now, okay? What's going on here? Paul is making a point, and the, Paul, and the point that he's making is that if we want to receive this righteousness of God, it can only come by means of faith. Now, what I mean by that is that when you see faith used in the Bible, it always means trust. It's not just knowledge, but it's acting on that knowledge. And in this case, it's trusting in the saving work of Christ for our righteousness. Once again, we cannot make ourselves right before God. Only Jesus can do this. So what faith means is that it's a humble posture before God to receive what only He can give. And in addition, because the grounds of our justification is by faith, it means that it's available to all. That's what he's saying in verses 28 to 29 when he says, is God only the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also? How could Paul say that salvation, the righteousness of God is offered to all humanity? Because it's by faith. It's not because because you need to be Jewish. It's not because you need to have this cultural background. It's not because you need to have this color and so forth that the only requirement to receive the righteousness of God is faith in Jesus, and it's no longer based on outward works, but on your inward heart. All of humanity can receive this. This is why Paul says in verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. He is saying because you are saved by grace through faith, all boasting is done. And what is the boasting he's talking about? It's the boasting in our self-confidence that we stop building our resume. We stop trying to slide it across the table to God. We're tearing it up and throwing it away because we know that the only resume worth showing off is the resume of Jesus Christ. Now, if you guys want an important test to see if you're walking in the righteousness of Christ, simply ask yourself this question. What are you boasting in? What are you seeking to give you that pride, that validation, that acceptance. If it's anything but Christ, you must repent of it. Now, this doesn't mean that you stop all boasting. Not at all. Instead, you are now free to boast in someone else, to boast in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 24, redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 26, the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you guys see? The ones who are righteous are not the ones who do the most, who achieve the most, who follow the letter of the law to the best of their abilities. It's those who have faith in Christ. And this is not faith in general, not faith in me, not faith in organized religion, not faith in just having faith, which is very commonplace in our culture, that I can believe whatever I want, but as long as I have faith in something, I'm good. No. You are saved by faith only 
in Jesus. This is a faith that means that you stop looking at yourself and you look only to Jesus. You boast only in Jesus. Now, what does this practically look like? Let me give you a few examples. To have the righteousness of God means that you can now rest. You can rest. You can stop working, stop earning, stop striving to be acceptable because you already are because of Jesus Christ. That you can lay down your work, you can lay down the anxiety, you can stop trying to work for, for that approval of that person, you can stop trying to climb up and get that job title because you don't need any of that. That adds nothing before God because you are the righteousness of God. He declares that over you. It also means to have the righteousness, righteousness of God that you are free from the guilt and shame that comes with sin. That because of Christ, you are now declared holy and acceptable. And now I know that many of us aren't living in that reality right now, that many of us are still stuck in the guck of sin and the guck of all the hurt in our lives. But if you are justified, God will bring sanctification and what this means is that when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. That in Christ, God no longer holds your past sin, your present sin, and your future sins against you. By faith, you have the righteousness of God. Corey Tenboom, a woman of God who survived the Nazi concentration camp, said these words. In the cross, God hurled our sins into the deepest part of the sea, and then put up a sign there saying, no fishing allowed. Isn't that good news? And let me just give you one more here. Finally, to have the righteousness of God means that you have a but now story to tell. That every single person in this room who is a Christ follower has this story. Because every genuine conversion story is a story of how Jesus met us and transformed us. That we who were once dead to sin, lost, broken, guilty, rule followers, but now alive, healed, pardoned, and free. We have these stories to tell and others need to hear it. Your co-workers, your friends, your neighbors, your family members, they all need to hear it because everyone is looking for that but now. Everyone is seeking for that righteousness. Everyone is longing for that acceptance and forgiveness. Everyone is looking to be validated. Now whether or not they need to know to look toward, towards God for that, they're still striving and seeking for it, but you have the answer. You have the but now. You know that it's in Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to him. You all have a story to tell, so tell it. You know, just a little over a week ago, a friend of mine was visiting New York, and as he was walking by, he saw this billboard in the middle of Times Square. Let me show it to you here. As you guys can see, it's a promotion for Kanye's album, Jesus is King. Now, let me just tell you something. I love this. Because if you were just to ask me a month ago, Kenson, would you ever believe that an album that sings and praises Jesus would be Billboard's number one album? I would say, <laughs> no way. Our culture's way too gone for that. Or if you were to ask me, hey, Kenson, uh, you know, would you believe that because of Kanye West, Google would report that over the last two weeks, millions of people have searched online for these very words. What does it mean for Jesus to be king? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? What does it mean? Well, what do Christians believe? 
impossible. Not a guy like Kanye. Or what if someone was to ask me, Kenson, would you ever believe that in the middle of Times Square that the words, Jesus is King, would be shining for thousands and millions to see? (laughs) No way. I'm here to tell you, with God, all things are possible. All of us have a but now story to tell. All of us have a righteousness of God received by grace through faith. All of us have someone to boast about, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, forgive us for all those times that we've seeked to validate ourselves. They got that for many of us who are Christ followers, that even though we know that you declare your love and your righteousness over us, that, Father, that we still find it insufficient. God, forgive us for that. Forgive us for minimizing your son's work on the cross. God, forgive us for minimizing your glory and the payment that was due for our, our rejection. But, God, we thank you that it's in Jesus Christ we do have the good news, that there is a but now that we who are once lost and empty and broken can now find healing and love and security in Christ. And Father, I do pray for us as a church. I pray for every single member who is sitting here right here today, that God, that we will go out and we would be bold and we would share our story. Father, that this is not a story about us, but this is a story about our King and Savior, Jesus Christ, and how he can transform all of us and how he can give us that but now moment. It's in his name we worship. Amen.